Welcome to episode 83 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Well, Mike, we have another incredible episode, brother, and talk about bringing in another heavyweight guest. I mean, when you look back at the last two years, man, we've had George, I think George Lopez was like one of the first guests we had, John Legazamo, Spike Lee, and now we bring to you the CEO of the Recording Academy, Harvey Mason Jr., which is also the first black president in the history of the Grammy Institution. And uh, we had a great conversation with him, Mike. One of the things that impressed me before we even met him was realizing what a multi-hyphenate he is. He's a record producer, a songwriter, a movie producer. He's all these things. And, you know, it's interesting to me because I feel like we're similar in that we have, we're multi-hyphenates. And I feel like in this industry, when you're brown and black, that's kind of really what you have to be. You have to be, you have to have talent in a number of different areas to succeed. That's right. We also spoke about leadership. And it's not necessarily leadership in the office. I mean, the days of the office are kind of gone. Uh, we are into this new hybrid mode of of remote working. Do not tell that to the employers because they don't think the days of the office are gone. <laughs> but, you know, we talked about leadership in every aspect of your life and especially what leadership means within brown and black positions. And anybody that wants to aspire to be at the level of a Harvey Mason Jr., uh, he sheds a lot of light of what went into building himself up to where he is now. Dude, he owns his own media company, essentially. I mean, it's funny because he's like the CEO of the Recording Academy, right? He has his own company, which he is also the CEO of. And he's still working like a regular dude with collaborations with big heavyweight people. And so to hear how he got to where he is today, I think that that's the gem of this conversation. I agree. And what was also fascinating to me is just how, I'm sure you can relate to this statement. I feel like I've had many lives. And one of the things is when you, you know, you have something that you were good at or something you learned, some skill or something you used to do, and then being able to take those skills or those things or those life lessons and then apply it to the next thing and allow that to take you higher. I thought that was very inspiring as well. This is one of those interviews that the more I've listened to it, the more I come away with a different understanding and the more some of the things he said actually kind of resonate. So I think this is definitely going to go down as one of our best interviews. Yeah. And of course, I had to ask him about reggaeton and Bad Bunny. You know, Mike, uh, reggaeton is about to become a $1 billion industry. And Bad Bunny this year has done something that not even Despacito could because Despacito was just a song. Imagine 23 tracks and a whole Spanish language album with no English. Imagine it becomes the first Spanish language album to win album of the year at the Grammys in 2023. 
Can the nomination happen? Will it ever happen? And so I got a chance to ask him directly and his response, man, it made all the sense in the world to me. One of the things we talk about on the show is pivoting because we started the show just before George Floyd and we were we were intending to really just talk about pop culture, but it seemed a little bit trivial at that time because so many other things were happening. So we pivoted and, and we made the show, you know, not so much more political, but really digging a little deeper and talking about the issues of race and how it affects us brown and black folks. And you're a record producer, a songwriter, a movie producer, and now you're CEO of the Recording Academy. But looking at your history, you started on a basketball scholarship. What are your thoughts on pivoting and, and utilizing skills you have maybe in one area to help you get to the next thing that you want to do or to reach your ultimate goal? Well, absolutely. And I'll start by saying thanks for having me. This is great. Uh, I feel like uh, very honored to be talking with you on the Black and Brown podcast. And the fact that I am a little black and brown, I guess, makes me feel good about it. But (laughs) (laughs) this is is a great thing y'all are doing. And I love the chance to talk to you about, about some of this stuff. As far as the pivot is concerned, to me, pivoting is the fun of life. Pivoting is what makes all this enjoyable. When you get the opportunity to experience something new and different and grow and evolve, to me, what's better than that? That is what drives me every day. And it's not necessarily the major pivots and the wholesale changes in life, but it's the small things that maybe you take a different road or you, you encounter something that you didn't expect or you learn something you ex- experience or you're exposed to something that was unintentional. And it leads you in another direction. And that's how I've led my life. That's what I enjoy. That's what I'm passionate about. That's really what inspires me is what am I going to learn today? What am I going to experience that takes me in a new direction? Who am I going to bump into that provides an opportunity to grow and evolve and pivot? So for me, sports was a first love. I was always into music and sports my whole childhood. I was playing music and I'd go out and shoot hoops and I'd go play baseball and I'd play football. And so as I got deeper into basketball, I learned a lot of things about life, you know, coming out of high school being, you know, what I thought was a really good basketball player, like all American, you know, led the state in scoring all the things that I accomplished in high school. I thought I was cool. I thought I was accomplished, but then going to college with some amazing, incredible, inspirational people, Steve Kerr, Sean Elliott, my coach, Lute Olson. These are people that I learned so much from. And I learned about life. I learned about hard work, goal setting, persistence, sacrifice, achieving things you didn't think you could do. These are things that allowed me, once I finished playing, to be able to make that pivot you're talking about. I used all the things I learned in life, all the experiences I learned from my teammates, from my coach, from my, my time at the University of Arizona, and I applied those to other things. I applied them to business. I applied it to relationships. I applied it to raising kids. So talk about the ultimate pivot, going from a kid in college making $270 a month on our scholarship checks to starting a career, raising a family, having responsibilities. And I think, fortunately, I grew up with a, a really strong family structure. My dad and my mom were both inspirations to me. I learned a lot from them. And then, as I said, what I learned playing sports with these teammates and with this coach was invaluable for me and allowed me to be able to make that first pivot into the music business. Harvey, 
you come from a musical family, and I'm sure that there was a sense that Harvey, my son, is going to become, you know, a musician. He's, uh, you know, I have my plans for my son. But you became an executive, and you're the first Black president and CEO of the Academy. Before this job, did you ever see yourself identifying as a CEO or an executive? I know you have your own company, but to do the Grammys, was that something you had set out to do? And if not, then how are you adjusting to what comes with the title, to the power that it allows you to execute on a vision that you might have had when when you were younger? Well, let me just start by clarifying one thing. My parents did not care if I was a musician. They didn't care if I was a chess champion or an astronaut or a doctor or worked at a retail store. They All they cared about was, number one, was I happy and healthy? And number two, was I accomplishing something and was I doing it to the best of my ability? And that's the thing I learned from my parents really early on. My dad specifically told me, I don't care what you do as long as you're good at it. And so anything I tried to do, I pushed myself really hard. My family pushed really hard. I had an amazing sister. We all were very, very intentional about making sure whatever it is we were undertaking, we were trying to do it to the best of our abilities. And so when I was into music, yes, I practiced. I took all the time I could to perfect my craft. I did everything I could to to accomplish the things that I wanted to accomplish. Same goes for sports. When I was playing sports, I was practicing. I was waking up before school. I was shooting shots. I was dribbling my ball to school as I walked to school. I was staying after practice, getting extra work. So these are the things that were instilled in me and indoctrinated into me by my upbringing, by my family. So for me, it was not necessarily about always wanting to be a musician or always wanting to be an athlete. I just wanted to, as I said at the beginning, experience cool things and do things really, really well. And for me, the goal is always excellence and to try and do things at a very, very high level. Mm. So when the opportunity to be involved in the academy came up initially, it was just as a board of trustee and a member of the local Los Angeles chapter. I thought that was a really cool thing to be able to do. Honestly, to be selfish, I, I thought I should join the academy and run for the board because maybe I could vote for myself and I could maybe win a, win a Grammy. <laughs> so that was the selfish motivation for starting. And then as I got more involved, I really started seeing what the organization did and the important things that it was enacting across the industry and in the ecosystem, all the, the give back and the philanthropic efforts and educational efforts and the advocacy, all those things really got me excited. And so it got to a point where I wanted to run for chair, which is an elected volunteer position, uh, and the board elected me chair. And so to your question... I was never intending on being the CEO. I was the chair and I was happy in that role. I was happy, hopefully, making the changes that I could contribute to at the academy and in the industry. And then there was an issue with the previous CEO and I was asked to step in. And at that point, through a, a couple conversations with some people that I trust and love, we decided that I could do more good in the role as CEO. So I accepted it. And then to your mm. final question of how does that feel and what is that experience like, I've I'm really, really excited. I'm really proud of what we've done in the last 18 months since I've been CEO. But I'm also acutely aware of the fact that there's a lot more that needs to be done or can be done, both from an internal perspective and what we look and feel like as an academy and also on a global worldwide perspective. What can we accomplish? How can we do more good work around music people? And everyone gets caught up you know, on this 
what the Grammys are, what the Recording Academy is. They get so focused on the TV show and the awards and the trophies, which I think are incredible. Don't get me wrong. I'm still trying to win my first. I've been nominated seven times. And I love what a Grammy represents and what it stands for. And, and being voted on by your peers as excellent in any category is a dream come true. So I'm not making light of that. Don't mistake me. But what I do want to make sure I emphasize is that's one part of what the Academy stands for. And that's one part of why I'm here. The bigger part is because I see the power of music and I see the power of, of the Academy and the Grammy platform. And I know what we can do. I know how we can bring people together. I know how we can use music to heal divides, whether it's racial, sexual orientation, gender, territory, religious. These are things that fall away when you start playing music and you start seeing people nod their head and dance in the streets or go to a show and you're standing next to somebody who you disagree with, but you all sing the same lyrics like we were doing when I jumped on the Zoom. So that's why I'm here. That's what wakes me up every day, make me feel like I'm so lucky and I'm so honored and I'm so humbled. And to your final point about power, I don't perceive this role as a role of power or, or attention or uh, credit. I see this as a role of service. I really honestly do. I think the Academy is in service to music people and in service to the music community. And so as the leader of the Academy, I'm a complete servant to music people around the world. And I think the best thing we can do is partner and collaborate with music people, whether that's labels or attorneys or managers or writers or producers, or, you know, the guys lighting the lo loading the lights into the truck for the show. These are the people that we want to represent. And these are the people the Academy is trying to make sure we're propping up and allowing them to make music and make this art that to me is really changing the world. You know, most people, that is their only understanding is the Grammys. And it brings into question just the whole idea of awards and potentially the quote unquote politics of a quote unquote Academy and who's there and who's making these decisions, who says this is great or, mm -hmm. or not good. But so my question is, first, for people who really only understand that, that, you know, the part of the iceberg that's sticking out, the, the Grammys, the awards, what does the Academy do? And, and what do you think most people would be surprised to learn that the Academy does? And then this, the second part of that is, what relevance should it have to artists of color, considering reggaeton and hip hop are, you know, this dominant musical force globally for those who don't understand the intersection between the recording academy the grammys music if you could lay it out a little bit yeah of course and this is our own fault i don't think we've done a great job of explaining this and we've just got caught in the narrative of we're an organization that gives away trophies and i think as i said it's really important but i think the other work is equally as important and, and i'll break it down for you in a really simple simple way the awards were started as a way to highlight music and shine a bright, bright light on our entire industry. And at the time it was started 65 years ago, it was really an idea that, that came about to try and amplify the music industry and get people to be aware of all the cool music and the great art that was being created. And at that point, it was to try and get people to be excited about new artists, buy records, go to concerts. So that's the genesis of the awards. But as I said, to break it down in its most simple form, right now the awards are a vehicle for us to utilize um, our platform, the Grammy name and the trophy, and create a TV property. That TV property right now is on CBS through the Viacom system and our deal that we've had for, I think, over 10 years there. 
that Viacom deal pays us money. We get $50 million roughly a show. It's not something that I guess I should always be talking about, but it's very clear to me. The money comes in because of the show, because of the awards, because of the artists that agree to appear on our stage. And that money in turn goes right back out the door to all of our programs. And I think that's what you're asking about. It's the music cares. It's our philanthropic arm, the safety net for music people all across the country, whether that's somebody who's you know lost uh, an instrument or had an, a natural disaster, a fire burned down their guitar and then I need a new guitar, boom, music cares. If they have a drug addiction or a mental health crisis or things that they need help with, music care steps in. Uh, if it's uh, they get in a car accident, they have medical bills, music care steps in. During COVID in the last year, music cares gave away $30 million to music people who needed help. That money comes from the Grammy show. It's very straight, no nonsense correlation. Grammy show generates money, money goes into the industry. The other thing we do is our advocacy efforts. We spend millions and millions of dollars in DC, fighting for the rights of music people, making sure we can continue to monetize our art and protect our intellectual property and make a living. Just like, you know, all of you, all of us, we all wanna make a living off this stuff. We work hard. I've been writing songs for 30 something years, 40 years. I wanna make sure that people like me and more importantly, the next generation of people that come into this business can make a living. So that's the second thing. The third thing we do is education and preservation. Our museum, our education foundation is around the country working with schools, providing instruments, providing teachers, underserved and underrepresented areas that don't have the financial wherewithal to do some of these programs. The Academy spends millions of dollars, again, helping young people be introduced to music, which I think is so important culturally, societally. There's a lot of value in making sure music is a part of education. So those are some of the things that we've done throughout the last 65 years of our history. Uh, as I said, we're starting to tell that story a little bit more clearly now and making sure there's an association and attachment between, yes, there's a show, you can be mad if you didn't get a nomination or you didn't win, I understand. I've been snubbed before as a writer myself. I feel like I should have won this award and I didn't, pissed me off. But when I zoom out and I pull back and I say, you know what, it doesn't make sense to tear down the organization that is purposefully there to lift the industry. So. That's kind of the, the narrative that I think we're starting to, to share a little bit more. And artists are starting to understand the bigger picture. I wish that the Grammys could do something about the erasure of black and Latino history in schools. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, hopefully it'll get better. But some of that can be done through music. Some of that can be done through music. I really believe it. It educates and it's exposure, Expo exposing people to the right. As you said, black and brown genres of music comes with a long history and a deep history. And I think once you use the music as the entryway or the gateway, you can tell other stories and bring other personalities and information to the table. And I think that's an easy way in. You were mentioning a little while ago about the business of the award show and how a lot of people just kind of focus on that. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. As an award event that depends on ratings to attract advertisers, do ratings matter to you, Harvey? And are you planning on altering maybe the, the revenue of the business model? Because you're putting out some of the best stuff. The last two, three years, I thought that's been some of the best Grammy shows I've seen since I was a kid. And the fact that the numbers come in low, I as myself, I'm like, what else can Harvey and the Grammys do? That was one of the best show events I've seen. And the ratings don't go up. So... How do you innovate? How do you get out of that to attract advertisers and show the quality of your product? 
I think it's a deep question, probably something that we could talk about for the whole show, but I'll try and simplify it by <laughs> right. saying, yes, ratings matter, but we all have to realize that the ecosystem or the consumption model has changed. Everyone's not sitting around watching a network show for three hours. What I will say is, although traditional ratings have been down, our eyeballs and people that are consuming and watching our product, our show, has never been higher. We're doing it in other new and innovative ways, as you said, and we're going to continue to do that. We've got great partnership with Viacom and CBS, and we really look forward to that continuing here for the next, I think, three or four shows. But we're also doing things online, and we're doing things in VR and AR. We're doing things with Roblox. We're doing mm. things with Meta. We're doing things on our social channels and on our web pages. So there's a lot that can be done to share and celebrate all this amazing work that these amazing and talented artists and musicians and creators and songwriters are doing every year. And if you remember back, that is the goal to shine a light on everything that happens in the year. Uh, to your point of ratings, though, that's really how we drive revenue. So it is a juggling act and it's a balancing act of how do we program and create a show that works for CBS and that works for our partners there and the demographic that watches the channel. Uh, and how do we counterbalance that with everything that's happening in music and all the newest, hottest, freshest stuff that's going on? And how do we showcase that while trying to also make sure we're attracting the right advertisers and the right demographics? So that's the juggling act that we do every year. Nothing, it's not easy, but it's something that we you know, consider a challenge. But it is going to give us some flexibility as we do more and more other alternative ways of, of showcasing the music. Building on what Jack's saying, because I, I, I really want to know your thoughts on this. I feel like the Grammys, like any musician, there's this period where they're very popular, they're very relevant. And then as they get older, you have to strive for relevance. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the relevance of the Grammys, not that it isn't relevant, but to the perception of relevance, especially to a younger generation, and especially to a generation of color that may have issues with how things were handled in the past. I can only speak about the time that I'm here. I know there's been a long history and there's been some things that have not been handled to the liking of every community. I'll just say that. Uh, I can say in the last two years, we've made huge strides in a lot of areas. As far as relevance is concerned, it's really going to be dictated and driven by our membership. You know, you said something earlier about the politics of the organization, and I'll just tell you straight up, there is no politics in the organization. It is our voters vote and the nominations get set and then the voters vote for a winner and the winner gets set. So to the, the, the topic of relevance, if our membership is relevant, our organization will be relevant because we'll get the nominations right, we'll get the winners right, we'll be talking about the best and freshest and newest and best music of the year. If our membership declines or if our membership ages out or becomes less relevant and less, less in the know of what's going on in contemporary music, then we will, I think, become less relevant. So a lot of importance for us and the team at the Academy has been around how do we make sure our membership are working professionals in the industry. We've just gone through a complete requalification. So you have to have been requalified in the last five years. And our entire membership has gone through that process, which means all the people now voting, maybe for the first time, are people that are actually working professionals in the industry. And I yeah. know that's always been the qualifier, but in the past, you could be a member for a longer period of time, which means if you wrote a song in the 80s or 90s, you could probably still vote depending on if you had some other credits. Now it's really about making sure we have people that are 
in the studios, on the road, on the stages, in the business on a day-to-day basis, evaluating and voting for the music. So our relevance will be dependent on, number one, can we continue to create and generate and attract a relevant membership? And I think it's a little bit of a, a cyclical issue, a chicken and the egg issue, because if we have a good show and we have good nominations, we attract the younger demographic. If we, if the right people get nominated and you know some of the younger artists' favorite artists gets nominated or their music gets nominated, they'll be attracted to the Grammys. If we don't, we won't. So that's the, the, the balance act that we're trying to continue to work on is how do we make a great show? How do we shine a light on the best Real, really the best music of the year and how do we attract members that are relevant and working in the industry and I think the other thing that is important is you got to remember as I talked about all the other things that the Academy is doing so yes we have to be relevant we have to get the nominations right but if you're looking at it as a holistic organization the value of that organization continues to be a lot of the other things that I think help a lot of young artists help give pathways and and doors open for the next generation mm-hmm. of music makers. And that's the advocacy stuff. That's the, you know, the opportunity to work in a thriving, successful, winning music business that has the opportunity to make a living. That's having uh, health care or other things that music care is providing for the next generation of music people that may not be available were it not for the organization. So I don't think, you know, obviously the Grammys is not the end all be all. I think it's an incredible organization with incredible history. We've got a lot of work to do going forward, but I do think the role that we play in the industry is an important one. And I think going forward, the value of a Grammy and a win and the attachment to your name and your career is very, very, very valuable. Well, I just want to say, uh, Jack, I know you're going to say something, but uh, there's that perception of politics. But if you change the body politic like you did, it changes the voting. So to me, I think that's huge. And uh, what I was going to ask you, uh, Harvey, can you explain to me the language laws of the Grammys? If you speak another language outside of English, can you qualify for an album, for, for a Grammy? Absolutely. Any language can qualify for a Grammy. You just need to be releasing your music in the United States. So K-pop artists have you know, been nominated, Latin artists, mm. Middle Eastern artists. There's been a lot of different nominations and a lot of different people from different areas that have been nominated. The qualification is you have to release your music in the United States. Having said that, we have the Latin Grammys, which have different rules, and that allows people to uh, be nominated for a Latin Grammy that have not released in the United States. They can release in other countries and other territories. And so there is no language barrier for any of our awards. So I have been looking at the whole history of the uh, Recording Academy, and not one single Spanish album has ever made the top categories of the global Grammys. And this particular year, Harvey, we have a very unique situation. Bad Bunny has had a Spanish language album be the top number one album on the Billboard 200 for eight straight weeks. He's the most streamed artist on the planet. This guy is probably and arguably the biggest pop star of the world. And there's been a lot of Latinos that since 2017 with Despacito, that also set so many records in Spanish that we didn't see ourselves necessarily reflected record of the year, song of the year. And as you were saying, it has to, it can qualify in Spanish as long as it's in English. Puerto Rico is an, is an American place. It's an American uh, possession, essentially, but it belongs to America. 
Can a Spanish language album this year, and I know you can't talk about specific artists, but can a Spanish language this year album make it to the top of the Grammys? Simple, straightforward answer. You have to remember how an artist or a record or a song gets nominated. It's exclusively done by the voters. So if we have enough voters who love that type of music or are aware of that type of music or can enjoy and appreciate that type of music and evaluate it, then absolutely. And that's one of the things that I've been doing in the last 18 months with our membership team is really working hard to make sure we're looking at the landscape, looking at popular genres of music and going into those genres and making sure that we're bringing them, asking them, inviting them into the academy. Because if we don't have enough Latin members, and I don't mean Latin because they're just speaking it, I mean Latin because they are listening to and know that music. If we don't have enough of those members from that genre, then it's going to be really hard. And the same goes for rock or hip hop or any genre you can think of. If we don't have representative numbers of voters that know that music, then it will be very tough for any specific genre to make it in the general field. I think you've seen in the past probably more pop artists in that field than other genres because our voting body is more expertise in that area. So it's a pretty direct correlation between the membership and what gets nominated for the big four categories. Mike, if I may follow up with that, um, I was, I've, been out, I've been talking to a lot of Latin artists about how they feel if they're nominated for a Grammy uh, in the Latin category and if they're nominated for a Latin Grammy. And I was thinking, this is the only culture, Harvey, that actually has its own Grammy event show in the United States. No other culture can do that. Can you talk to me a little bit about the uniqueness of this culture and the way the Grammys treats the whole Latin Grammy? Can that be spinned off into other languages? Or explain how how special this situation is. (laughs) Well... That's a great question. And I do think there's a special and unique relationship with the Latin music community. And I'm sure it's something that can be done in other areas, but it's really based on the popularity and the success and the abundance of that genre's music and how it's come into America. It's on radio, it's on streaming, it's everywhere. And Latin music has been doing that. And I think you've touched on it since Despacito, possibly before, But that's really what brought it to the national consciousness. And I think now you're seeing on the charts, you're seeing just as many records that are not in English as are in English. So I think because of that 20 years ago, uh, people probably smarter than me thought this is a great opportunity to start a Latin specific Grammy Awards show. And it was established literally 20 years ago. And it was done because we didn't think we could accommodate all the music that was coming out in just a couple categories. And as other genres of music develop and become more and more popular, I'm sure there will be opportunities to develop other Grammys in other languages and other areas. But the Latin music was so obvious and it was blowing up in so many ways around you know, our country and South America and other areas that it felt like a logical next step for the Academy to make sure we were honoring that music specifically. All right, I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions um, about leadership because you're in a leadership role and you, you talked about how what you learned from sports and the mentors and and clearly having parents who were supportive of what you were doing. I, I just want to know in, in terms of advice that you might give to some of our listeners, uh, what you've learned or what you're applying 
from, you know, that you may have learned this 25 years ago, but it's still true in the bigger it gets, it's still the same principle. So it sounds to me like you have a number of principles that you've embraced and values. So if you could share, I would love it. Yeah, I would love to hear it because upward mobility for brown and black people, you know, it's not the same as it is for other groups. So any advice for us brown and black folk that can ascend to maybe where you are, uh, knowing the paths that are set against us? Again, another topic that probably deserves more attention than we'll be able to give it. But I think before talking about leadership, we have to talk about having enough experiences and enough uh, input, information, uh, absorption of, you know, being able to sponge up enough things to be able to put yourself in a position to be a leader. And I think that involves learning and listening and being close to people that you respect and getting right up under somebody that you think might be doing something that is something you might want to do or something that seems interesting and exciting and something you can learn. I think it involves humbling yourself and making sure you're open and receptive to listening and learning. And as you said, black and brown people, a lot of times there have been some, some walls up against us. And sometimes we're not always of the mindset to be able to be uh, in a place where we can just sit in it and be confident and be in control of where we are and take the time that it, that's needed to learn and build yourself and perfect where you are as a person in whatever field you decide to, to enter. Having done some of that homework and the sacrifice and the persistence that it takes to be valuable to a company or to an organization and hopefully rising to the level of leadership, once you're in that position, to me, what I've found works, and this is not for everybody, this is, everybody's got a different style. For me, it's really, I rely heavily on teamwork and partnership and collaboration. And maybe that's from my sports background and I had incredible teammates. We had all of us pulling the rope the same direction. And I do the same thing as, as a CEO. I've done it in my own company and I try and do it at the academy. Maybe some people will say I've done a good job. Maybe some will say I, I haven't. But one thing I know is I have big ears, literally and figuratively. I listen a lot. I ask a lot of <laughs> questions. I try and bring as many people to the table as I can because I know I don't know everything. I know I'm not as smart about this subject, or I'm not an expert about that subject. So I try and bring people close. I try and listen, and I try and make good decisions based from my heart and my head. I try and be very honest. I always try and be transparent, and I try to be fair. So I think it's a, it's a very overly simplified answer, but collaborating and utilizing your resources and people around you and bringing them together and making decisions that you can believe in and you can stand behind from an honest and uh, really wholesome place to me makes a big difference in your leadership style and making sure that there's a communication and there's buy-in and, and just you're reaching out to people to bring them on board and get them involved in the process. And, and that's something that we've done at the Academy, not just me, but everybody in the organization. Whereas before, I think we tended to be a little bit more isolated, a little more siloed. Now we're reaching out, as I talk about membership, into the community, as I talk about our labels and our partners, whether that's indie labels or major labels, it's reaching out and making sure, hey, is everything right? Is there something we can do better? How can we change? How can we deepen our relationship? How can we make a more impactful partnership? These are the types of things I think translate to, to good leadership. 
And my final question, Harvey, uh, before we let you go, we usually ask this of everybody uh, before we end our Brown and Black podcast, but for you, what are your thoughts on what is the power of Brown and Black unity? The power of Brown and Black unity, I think it closely resembles the power of unity in general, but speaking specifically to Brown and Black unity, I think people are always more educated, more knowledgeable, more uh, capable if you are collaborating and connecting. And it goes a little bit to your last question of leadership, but I think the brown and black communities being unified, working together, sharing knowledge, sharing experiences, and then continuing to grow together makes a lot of sense. And I have to say that these cultures are so important individually, and there's been such a shift in culture and it's, it's a lot of it's been driven by these cultures we're talking about. A lot of a lot of what's changed or what's been innovated or iterated on has come from these cultures. And I think you see it in art and music and business and fashion. There's so many different things, literature. There's so many things that we are really, really driving important change. And so I think making sure that we're united with each other. And not just with each other, but with others and bringing as many stakeholders to the table as possible and doing it in a honest and you know humble way. And I think people have different opinions about that. Some people are a little bit more uh, strong-willed about it. I truly believe there's a place for everyone at the table. I truly believe we can all learn from each other. And I truly believe that together we're stronger than individuals trying to climb a hill by themselves. So I'm a firm believer in unity. I'm a firm believer in collaboration and learning and growing together. All right. Well, I have to say, as you were talking, I do have one more question, Jack. And maybe you've been asked this before, but maybe not now. I, I think I'm probably unique in my perception of what an artist is. Uh, I see art as creative problem solving because that's what you're doing when you're doing your art. But I also think that that's what you do in a leadership position as well. So the cliche is if you're an artist, you know, you're going to starve. I, I just want to know what advice and how you were able to navigate being good at business and also being an artist because, you know, you're a unicorn. It's show business. It's show business. So that, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's some unicorn yeah. behavior. We, we need a little insight. To. Well, I like <laughs> the way you described it, creative problem solving. I'll add another layer on that. I would say to me, the way I've approached art has been creative vision execution. And I, I don't like to think of it as problem solving because to me that implies a negative and there's a connotation to that that feels like, oh, I got to do this and I've got to do that. To me, it's about having a vision and creatively implementing it and being able to just pick something out of your mind or out of thin air, out of your soul and either put it on paper with paint or have it come out the speakers. So really having a vision and being able to figure out how am I going to get there? And I guess to your point, that is the problem solving, but it's how do I get to where I'm imagining or dreaming or believing in my head? I think that's relevant to art. I think it's relevant to life. I think every kid is sat on the, on the edge of his bed thinking about, oh, I want to be a doctor or I want to play in the NBA or I want to be host of a podcast. And you have these dreams and these aspirations and it's how are you going to get there? What are the steps you're going to take to get there? As it relates to, remuneration and how you get paid and how you make a living. It's never been something that I've focused on. I've always chased 
my dreams. I've chased my goals. I've grown up my whole life, thankfully, as I said, in a very fortunate position. So I know I have the benefit of a good family and support and systems in place that a lot of people don't have. But to me, the focus is what are my dreams? What's going to make me happy? What's going to make me fulfilled? And with that, I've found comes with the ability to make a living. Not always. I know there's a lot of starving musicians that believe in their art and believe in their music and they're not making a fair wage. And that's something that I'm intent on working on at the Academy with the help of our advocacy team, because I do believe there are some things in place for all of us, but specifically black and brown people that prohibit us from making a fair wage in certain areas. So uh, long-winded answer, sorry. I'm all about chasing the dreams, being excellent, trying to evolve, trying to grow, trying to be better, uh, and always with an end goal of finding what you love to do and making yourself happy. And with that will come success, hopefully, and some financial rewards. Well, thank you very much, Harvey Mason Jr. for being on the Brown and Black podcast. We really appreciate it, man. You gave us some really gems and some nuggets of wisdom that we would like to you know, to reflect on and, and, and hopefully our audiences too. So thanks a lot. I appreciate it, man. It's great to be here. Thank you for what you all are doing and thank you for having me. All right, Harvey. Thank you so much again, man. Take it easy. That's it for this episode of Brown and Black. We'd like to thank Harvey Mason Jr. for joining us. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by Joshua Torado. You can follow our comments and opinions on at Brown Black Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We'll see you on the next episode of Brown and Black. Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro.